Well, good morning. Happy uh, Memorial Day weekend to you. Thanks for being here. I guess you opted out of camping, huh? Some people out there in the rain somewhere, you know they're out there, but uh, glad you're here. Anybody tired this morning? Maybe you didn't sleep well, had a long week? Okay, got one per couple people. You just tough, maybe always tired. Uh, I, so I got a question for you. It's rhetorical. Please don't actually answer. But, you know, I was just thinking uh, if you're tired this morning, if I, if I explained to you at the beginning of the message that I'd forgive you if you fell asleep, would that be helpful to you? Would that, would that help you stay awake, or would that make it harder? I just, I'm not sure what to do there. Anyway, yeah, don't do So let's not think about that very much. Maybe we shouldn't think about falling asleep right now. Uh, think about this instead. If, uh, if you're a parent, or actually if you're not a parent, imagine you're a parent, you look out in the backyard, and you see the kids, and they're, they're, they're developing something big. I mean, you know, it's ropes, and off the roof, and over here, and you know, the whole thing, and you see something developing, and you get a little worried, and you go out there, and you tell them, uh, hey kids, I just want you to know, here's my plan for fixing all the damage that I'm worried you might create. Does that sound smart? Does, or does that sound like a really foolish idea, like bad parenting? I don't know. You could think about that. Or let's say we're gonna, you're going to loan your car to someone, and the last thing you tell them is, hey, here's the key, and by the way, I just want you to know that I went all out. I got the top-of-the-line insurance, you know? D- just like I, it's really expensive, but it's like zero deductible, covers every contingency, and I hope you have a great time. Does that sound stupid to you? I don't know if it, it's, it sounds kind of foolish. Uh, I think our life experiences tell us those things would not be the, the best things to say. And, you know, we might be right. It's not very good motivation. In our uh, series on the, the book of 1 John, we turn the corner in terms of moving to chapter 2, but we pick up a, a familiar theme. John's already talked about sin. And John says to us, my little children, I'm writing these things to you with a purpose. It's so that you would not sin. Sin is something he's already talked about. Now, John speaks, and, and you might remember in, in the last few weeks, Pastor Bob has mentioned several times that John is a little older when he's writing this book. He's speaking kind of with the, the, the tone and the passion of a spiritual grandfather. He's not scolding us about sin at this point. He, you know, he's not putting us down. It, it's very endearing. It's very, he's imploring. He's imploring like your, your spiritual grandfather. Like, kids, don't sin. Don't do that. Don't, don't go in that direction. Now, he could turn to a variety of different motives at that point. Having said that, he could, I mean, we could list several things. He could talk about, you know, don't do that because it's so destructive. You understand that, that God wants the best for you. We already t- talked about how God is light. There's no darkness in him. He doesn't say don't sin because he's trying to manipulate you or something. He understands it's destructive. He could talk as Peter does about sin, that it wars against your soul. It's so destructive. He could use that as motivation. He could talk about how, how uh, Jesus saved you not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And now in Christ, for the first time in life, you actually have freedom to choose not to sin. You couldn't do it before. 
You were a slave. You were subject to the power and influence of sin. You just, you just followed after it. Now you're free from that pressure. You can actually choose not to go there. You could talk about that. He could uh, talk about the motivation of just a reasonable expectation. Come on, you're God's children. You're God's family. Don't be going there. Don't, don't, don't do that. If you were John, what would you turn to as motivation? The shocking thing, I think, for us is that he turns to God's forgiveness. That God will forgive you if you do sin. Now, does that sound wise to you, what you know about people? Or does that sound like maybe a risky thing to do? Here is the rest of the passage we're going to look at today. He says, if anyone does sin... Understand that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. John talks to us here about some of the marvels, the deep things of God's forgiveness, how he goes about it, and the implications for us. See, humanly speaking, this is a, this is a foolish thing to do. I mean, when you look around at the people you know, and you look at you in the mirror... Do you think it's very smart for God to say up front, you know, I'm a forgiving God. Before you decide whether to sin or not, you can know that I'm a forgiving God. I'm not sure I could be trusted with that information. And yet he goes there. I think God is confident, and, he's, and, and John has experienced now, God is confident that when we fully appreciate, when we really understand what it means that God forgives us, we will find that motivating to avoid sin, and that we will not abuse his good graces. That's what we're after today, to understand his forgiveness in a little deeper way and find that motivation that God has for us. We'll look at several things. The first is that God's forgiveness is very personal. Understand that God doesn't say, he doesn't just go out and save people. He doesn't just save you, he gives you a savior. He doesn't just redeem you, he sends you a redeemer, a person. And that's one of the, thing that, one of the things that John points out. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, we have a person, his name is Jesus. And with God, I think it's always a personal thing. Now, so often, too often, we treat God like the the thing that will fix our problems. And he is a problem solver. But when you just get stuck in that mentality, I think it's a dangerous place. Because for God, things are personal. And forgiveness is that way. You might remember in John chapter 14, Jesus is is sharing his last meal with his friends, and he tells them he's leaving them. Next day, he's going to die on the cross. He says, I'll be leaving you behind. And they get concerned about that. And and Jesus says, don't worry, you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. At which point, one of them says this, kind of interesting. He's like, Lord, excuse me, but we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? I think, I think it's Thomas. I think he's thinking like, what is this? Are you going, you're going to Egypt or Syria? Give us a map or tell us which road or, or something. We need some concrete information. You say you know. Now, at this point, Jesus could just really plainly clarify in terms of the problem-solution thing. He could say, no, wait, I, I just meant that I'm going to heaven and you know the way to get there. It's about trusting me and you guys already believe me. You already trust me. So that's where you're headed. You know the way. You're on your way there as well. He could resolve all the problem-solution kind of scenario, but instead he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
Why does he do that? Why can't he say it simply? No, he has to go off and be a a poet or a deep theological thinker or slightly mystical so you kind of get it, but you're not sure you get it. No, that's not what he's doing. He's not trying to be confusing. What he's doing is saying, don't just think of it as a problem. It's about me, Jesus says. I am the way. I am the way. You just want to fix? I want you to have me. That's what I want for you. Even what's probably the most famous verse in the Bible is that way. For God so loved the world, uh, the, the people of the world, and, and, and lost in sin, he loved us so much, he provided a solution. Well, that's true, but he gave his son. Forgiveness is always intensely personal. And the things that God is about doing in your life are intensely personal. Again, I think that's one, one of the reasons sometimes we're, we're frustrated with him. We want a solution, and he provides himself. Provides himself. Now, in, in 1 John, John says we have a, an advocate. This is a really a couple of fairly simple verses. In fact, I thought about it. If we had a, an extra hour somewhere, I thought, you know what? I could teach you guys uh, enough Greek in about an hour that you could read these verses and you could translate them and you could know what's going on because, first of all, the grammar is not terribly complex. It's close enough to English that you wouldn't have a hard time. You wouldn't have to study a lot of grammar. And, and almost all the words kind of have a one-for-one corresponding you know, Greek word, English word. They're pretty much straight up. This means this, with two exceptions. One is the word propitiation. We'll study that later. I mean, we don't even know what it is in English, so what, a, what, what did John mean in Greek? I, I have no idea. So we got that one. The other one is advocate. We don't really have a word that's a straight-up one-for-one, and that's how languages are. They're, they're rarely like that. Those are our two words that we've got to think carefully about today. Now, advocate. It can mean lots of different things. First of all, it can have the, uh, the, the meaning of a spiritual comforter or counselor. Kind of that, that person that helps you with the inside stuff, the emotions, the, the encouragement, the, the, the personal or spiritual stuff. And, and in, back in John 14 again, after Jesus talked about I'm the way, he goes on and says, you know what, I'm leaving, but I'll send you another one of what I am, another comforter, the Holy Spirit. Jesus was actually the first one of these. I'll send you another one, he says, the Holy Spirit. A spiritual comforter. The word can also mean something much more kind of hands-on and tangible. As someone, and you've probably heard, may have heard the phrase, someone who comes alongside of you. The Holy Spirit is described that way at times. A practical helper. Now, in, in lots of uses of this word, sometimes it's just someone who comes along and helps you take care of the garden or build your barn or fix your car. You know, it's just something hands-on, practical. Someone who helps you with something. And then sometimes this word can be used in kind of a legal way, that this is your legal counsel, the person who uh, helps you uh, in court or helps you in a debate, and it's a persuasive person, and they do the speaking for you. And that's what John has in mind with the word here. Now, forgiveness is, is personal, and we see here that Jesus is speaking on our account. He's like, guys, let me talk. Okay, let me talk here. I'll take care of this. Let me talk to dad, right? Pastor Bob mentioned that. There's always like one child that you send to talk to. Jesus like, let me talk to the father, okay? I'll handle this. I'll be your advocate. And notice again the personal way. How is he going to handle it? By talking to the father. 
We'll, we'll talk about your case. We'll talk about what's going on here. I'll represent your best interests. Now, for all the times that fathers or mothers have rushed out into the yard to warn their kids about how they're playing and what's going on and so forth, uh, it, it's, it's kind of sad, I think, how often that the real message that children have received in those scenarios is that, wow, dad's really concerned about his property. And it's really not very motivating. Imagine, though, the, what happens when the greatest impression, the message that children get is that, wow, dad really cares about me. How much more powerful, how much influential, how much more motivational that is. See, if forgiveness for you is a solution to a problem that you've come up against in life, won't it just be a solution that you could just apply again tomorrow? I think so. A person you care about is always way more motivating than a rule, than a law, than the structures of an institution. A person you care about and you're convinced they care about you, that's always more motivational for us. Now, John talks about a couple themes here early in his book, and one of them is fellowship and one is sin. And as we think about those two subjects, those two themes in his book, we could relate them in, in a cause and effect kind of way. Now, make sure you don't sin, John could say, because that'll break fellowship. And fellowship is deep, deep, meaningful relationship with God. You want to do that. And we could talk about a cause and effect thing. I think he's kind of alluding to a reciprocal kind of relationship here. It's true that there's a cause and effect thing, but he's also saying that once you're in fellowship with God, that's so highly meaningful and motivational. Why would you want to walk away from that to sin? And having avoided sin, you have more fellowship, and once you're there, and it just keeps going around and around in a really good way, a really good motivational way. Forgiveness, God's forgiveness of us, is so intensely personal. And I think John says that's something he could trust in. God trusts us with that information as well. Next thing is that God's forgiveness is legitimate. It's on the up and up. Now, when I was in high school, uh, actually all through my school years, I rode a bicycle to school. Until I got to be about a senior in high school, my sister had a car that sometimes she would let me drive to school, which is pretty cool because you get there, and at lunchtime, you're a senior, and you're like, you get to go out for lunch, and so I go out, and I hop in her little orange car, and I back out of my parking space on this side, and I back out, now, first of all, first problem, never park in a high school student parking lot, right? It's a bad idea. But I pull out, and I'm just starting to go forward when another student backs up and hits the left rear fender of my sister's car, right? Now, the way I remember it, it's been, oh, six, seven, maybe more than 10 years ago <laughs> that I was in high school. So anyway, it's long enough that I'm not completely sure of the facts, but what I recall is that the guy who was driving jumped out of the car, and the girl that was in the front seat, his girlfriend, obviously, they, they jumped out, and they didn't, like, check the damage, or are you okay, or what's going on, they came up and they were very focused on one thing. He's like, please, whatever happens here, would you say that she was driving? And she's like, yeah, please, it's my dad's car and he's not, a, you know, it's the boyfriend, so, and, you know, he's not supposed to drive and no insurance and I don't know, he doesn't have a license or something like that. Please, could we just agree that he was driving? 
Okay, so I'm in high school, and you know, it's like instantly, uh, what do you do? You know, like, am I going to lie for these people? And you're really confused, and you don't know what to do. And in the end, uh, you know, we decided the damage was so minor, we actually didn't need to do anything, so I didn't have to lie to him. But I've thought about that many times. It's like, what would it have been like for this guy to keep going and to, you know, wake up at night or get down the road and think, yeah, I really let her take the blame for that. How am I feeling about myself right now? I think it would have been a little complex emotionally for him. It can't have been a very good possibility. Now, the truth was, I don't know, I think my life was way more in danger because it was a pinto. And I got rear-ended at a pinto and lived to tell about it. So anyway, if you're too young, you don't want to let anyone drive behind you when you're in a pinto. But, so, you know, it, it all worked out. Fine, but I've thought about that guy, and, and maybe that story to you sounds a little bit like what we're talking about today, the, the cross, someone else takes the blame, and I suppose there is that little angle, but here's the problem, it's nothing like the cross, because the whole scenario was going to be built on the fact that we're all going to pretend that he was innocent, which is a lie, and that's not how God's forgiveness works. Have you ever felt like maybe God forgiving you was just a little arbitrary? That, that you're guilty, but God's just going to pretend. He's like, uh, all right. <laughs> That's not what happens. Jesus comes and he's an advocate for us, but he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the righteous one. And he will not pull strings, and he does not cut corners to produce salvation for you. He does not ask his father to just look the other way and pretend something that isn't real. He only deals with reality. It got me thinking about our legal system, and you know, a lot of people talk about how it's, well, it's the best that the world's created so far, and you know, I guess I suppose that's probably right, but it sure operates with some different things than God operates with, and, and you know, again, we're doing the best we can, but I thought about, you know, if I was in trouble and I had a lawyer representing me, I was on a jury once, and it was like the three worst days of my life, but anyway, you know, I've seen a little bit of that. Most of this is probably like too much TV, so I apologize for that, but I, I imagine being represented by an attorney, and you just get the sense like, well, any argument that the judge will allow, I'll, I'll use it, you know? Anything that I could say that might work, that's fair game. Or, you know, you get the whole, I, I, I'm not trying to create innocence here, I'm just trying to create reasonable doubt. You know, if there's a doubt in your mind, then we'll call you innocent, right? And that's a, that's a really interesting concept. And, of course, an attorney can always go, well, if we need to, we'll just plead insanity. You know, yeah, just crazy. That might work. And at the end of the day, an attorney can still go home and go, well, you know what? You, no one wins them all, right? No one's completely persuasive. Jesus, on the other hand, says, I, I am the righteous one. I only work with what is absolutely true and right and just. So again, I'm picturing myself in one of, you know, what's the room looks like you get arrested, you go in, they put you behind a table, and there's one chair on one side and two chairs on the other, right? And the table's kind of rectangular, it's never round, it's never square, and then there's the glass wall on the other side, right? And they interview you and all that kind of thing. Again, too much TV. But I, I picture myself, and Jesus comes in, and you're going to talk about whether or not he'll be your legal counsel. He says... 
Here's the first thing you need to know. I'm Jesus Christ the righteous. So I only work with people who will plead guilty. You plead guilty, I can work with you. I win all my cases. You want to try and maintain innocence? There's nothing I can do with you because I only work with reality. I want to help you. I just can't. John says, if you claim to be without sin, you lie to yourself. And the one who would be your advocate says, I, I can't help you. I can't go into the courtroom and pretend that you're innocent. Can't be done. He's completely persuasive, and he bases it on his righteousness on his cross. In Romans chapter 3, there's this great discussion going on about the cross and all the things God's done to, to, to secure our forgiveness and our salvation, our redemption. And in verse uh, 26, he, Paul offers this, this explanation. Now, why does God have to do all this? And he says it's so to be, to be just, because God is not going to turn and cut corners. He's not going to pretend something. He will be just. He will maintain his justice. He will live it out. But he will also be the one who justifies. He will take the righteousness of Christ and apply it to people in a legally binding and forthright manner. God will accomplish both. I've wondered, what it, what's it like, because it, it happens to people, I'm sure, from time to time, some people, a few people, to be guilty of a crime on earth, to be guilty of some law, breaking some law, and you go to trial, and maybe it's a hung jury, or they just find you innocent, and you walk out of the courtroom. And I understand it would be, anytime someone tells you you're not going to prison, that's probably an awesome <laughs> feeling. But what about the rest of your life? How do you process that? I imagine that would be an extremely complex thing to have to deal with. Well, I know I'm guilty, but they said I'm innocent. Is that going to do good things in your life? Are you on a good track at that point? I would think that's really troubling and confusing. See, if you feel that God just doctors the books, it's like, eh, I'm looking the other way, all right, you know. I don't know how, but we'll pretend you're innocent. That's, I think that's troubling. I don't see any motivation there. But you see, if, if your true legal standing is something to, to have the righteousness of Christ, now that's something that I'd want to live up to. That's something worth having and something to mimic and to let motivate you. God's forgiveness is legitimate completely. It's another thing, and that is that it's positive. We need to think of forgiveness as not something that just removes a, a negative element of our lives, but something where God goes all the way to a positive place. Now, this is a little complex, so hang with me here. I think Think now for, for a moment about just human relationships, your relationships in your life, and how you experience um, sin and forgiveness between people, okay? I know it's way more complex than this, but, but humor me a little bit here, and let's just say that there's kind of three stages of this, especially kind of on that internal emotional part of it. First of all, 
it starts out very negative, right? Someone stabs you in the back, they hurt you in some way. I don't have to come up with a list. You know what that's like, right? People hurt you. you you've got your own list. Just access that. Okay, you're over here. It doesn't feel good. Okay, we're over here in a pretty negative place emotionally. If someone says they're sorry, there's an apology, that's like repentance, and you know, you evaluate that, and you're like, oh yeah, you know, I remember that sermon, I remember, you know, God says vengeance is mine, da da da. So you, you kind of move to a neutral place, and you conclude that you, all right, I won't try and get back, I'm going to kind of try and let go of some things here, uh, I'm going to be open to maybe pursuing more relationship with you and so forth. So you kind of move to this neutral place, not quite so negative, but how are you feeling about the person? Mm, You know, okay, not great. Now, how do we, in our experience with each other, usually move to a place where we're over here and like, I do trust you, I, I do love you, I do, I'm feeling affection for you again. How does that happen? Usually for us, and now I'm not critiquing this, I'm just kind of like observing it. Usually for us, it doesn't have to do with, directly, with the um, apology and the I forgive you. It's from here, from neutral over in some kind of new experience. Maybe we were working on a project and you took all the credit and I was really hurt and you apologized and so, all right. We could work on another project, and now you've proved trustworthy, and so I'm feeling good about you again. Why? Because of this new experience. I think that's kind of how we experience things. Now, here's the problem. We experience that over and over again with people. When we place that paradigm on God, we far underestimate how he forgives In fact, I think we cause ourselves some confusion and we pull some of the motivation right out of our forgiveness to avoid sin. Here's what I mean. Again, think on the emotional level. Now God is the offended person. You're the one who hurt him. You're the one who sinned, right? So he's over here and he's hurt or he is, if we could say, angry. He's mad about this. Where does that go? What happens to that part in God in forgiveness? Because we experience that part. Now, I think we could do one of a few things with that part of God. First of all, we could say, God's not angry. God's not an angry God. John himself, you know, just wait till, I don't know, middle of August or something. We'll get around to, in 1 John, God is love. See? He's not angry. God is love. God is love. The problem is, if you want to read the Bible, you discover that God gets really upset with sin because it destroys what he loves so much. Sin brought death into the world. It's killing this world. It's killing his creation. And the the thing, the objects of his love, the greatest objects of his love, the people he created to have relationship with, it's destroying us and he hates it. And it's really clear. The book of Romans develops that theme really clearly. It says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, in other words, you won't start over here with him, you're storing up, when you don't go there, you store up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath because 
God experiences that. Now, wrath, of course, is much more complex and rich a concept than just the anger we're talking about. So I'm kind of playing with the definitions there. God has a righteous judgment against sin. It's his, it's his creation. He owns it. But, but anger is a part of that mix. And it says when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So, you know, I have a real problem. Some people, especially in the last 100, 150 years, have wanted to kind of help God out, you know? You could put him through anger management, enough time, you know, we kind of clean up that theology. He's not a mad God anymore. He doesn't get up. He's, he's not upset. Don't worry about that. He's love. Well, don't read Romans. Another, another option. Another option would be to kind of succumb to it. And I don't know, maybe this represents you today. I know there's some people who kind of react this way, might hear me right now and go, I knew it, thank you for finally telling me the truth, because I knew God was mad at me. <laughs> I knew it. He is angry. How could he not be angry at me? I can feel it inside. I, I just know it. Because you're right. He hates sin. Thank you, Pastor Bill, for finally clearing this up. At least now I can go home knowing I believe the truth. He is... You know what I think we're doing? We're placing our own experience onto God. We're not hearing from God what he says about it. See, because that's what we do. We go over here, and so now, again, let's throw ourselves in the mix. Oh, I blew it. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I repent. John told me to. He said you'd be faithful and just to forgive me. So we view God as getting over here to neutral, saying, okay, I won't punish you. Now, how is God going to feel good about me? Well, those next things I do. So I'm going to work really hard, you know. Okay, God, I'll go to Nicaragua. For Pete's sake, how radical is that, right? How could you not love me? Well, you know, I go and then I get mad at people and I'm, like, oh, I'm right back here. And so what happens is I keep trying to do some good things to gain a ground where I feel like now there's something to be pleased with, but I keep finding myself back over here so often. I'm so wildly inconsistent. I conclude what I would conclude with any other person, and that is if they keep hurting me over and over and again and they keep saying we have to start back at square one, I'm finally like, Fine. <laughs> I forgive you, but, you know, maybe we could just stay in our separate worlds. I don't trust you. That's what we do, and we think maybe that's what God has done. It's not. Here's our third option. That's to believe that Jesus has resolved that. Here we come to that other word, propitiation. What in the world is that? That is a word that um, has been translated into an English word. We don't know what it means either. So I don't know, we could have just used the Greek word. But here it is, and it can mean a couple different things. It does have to do with this forgiveness concept. When it's uh, referring to the guilty person, it will, it will uh, refer to the sacrifice. So like in the Old Testament, they could translate that into Greek, and, and it would refer to the lamb that was used in a sacrificial system. The lamb was the this word, right? Okay? That's when it refers to the guilty person. When it refers to the person who was offended, who was sinned against, in this case, God, it it means to resolve their anger. To resolve their anger. That's exactly 
what John is talking about here. Some of you have Bibles that translate it the sacrifice way. The, the translations I usually use, they, they do that. Sorry, they're wrong this time. But anyway, some of you have some that pick the right word. Propitiation is the word. See, Jesus is talking. He's, he's an advocate. He's talking to the Father. What's he trying to figure out and resolve with him? The wrath of God. And he is that. It's completely resolved in Christ. Not because it wasn't there, but because Christ is able to do that, righteously propitiate or resolve, satisfy God's demand for justice, including, if we will, that emotional component of anger. He takes the full weight, the crushing blow of the wrath of God on the cross. It's not just a physical, painful experience. It's fully embraced and taken the hit of the anger of God about your sin. And that completely resolves it for God. He doesn't move, you see, from, from negative to neutral. It's completely gone. See, here we, we're neutral because we're like, how do I feel about this? It's resolved for God. He goes over here to a positive place. Now, do we sometimes abuse God's grace? We're tempted to sin. And we think, well, he'll forgive me. Yeah. Yeah, we're idiots. We're foolish. And we stomp on his grace. And we're capable of that. But you see, I believe we're far less likely to do so when we really comprehend, when we really understand what he's accomplishing here. See, because God moves all the way from there over to here again, kind of comparing to our experience, and he says some amazing things to us over here. See, which child is more likely to disappoint his or her parent? The one who's like, you know what, dad's never pleased with me anyway. What's the difference? Or the child that's like, I know my dad loves me. Of course I want to turn away from sin. See, and God comes over here all the way to the positive side because of his son. And we, we think we want God, the, the forgiveness from the penalty of sin and then we'll take care of the rest. We'll be good. We'll do something. And God says, no, it was Christ. It was his righteousness. It, it's, it's him that I look at in you. And I say, not only do I love you, but walk out today trying this on for size. I like you. I like you. I am pleased with you. John's saying, you grab hold of that? That's motivational. Really? You really want to stomp on that? It's awful good stuff. He's pleased. It's positive. And then the last thing is that God's forgiveness is boundless. It's unlimited, inexhaustible, infinite. There's one last objection that I hear from 
people from time to time, maybe you hear it from someone, maybe you hear it kind of inside. And that is, okay, I believe that when God forgives someone, it's absolutely amazing and deep, transformational. However, (laughs) I know he couldn't forgive me. Well, John has our answer, of course. He says, wait, Christ did this for our sins, not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, wherever you go, whoever you find, Christ is able to cover their sin as well. And so maybe if, if you know someone or you sit there thinking, but you don't know what I've done, well, I'm sorry, with all due respect, who should I believe? <laughs> Should I believe the the finite person with an admittedly large capacity for sin? Or should I believe an infinite God with an absolutely boundless capacity to forgive? Sorry, I'm going with God. I believe him. So John has said, children. It's like, what can I say? Children, don't sin. Don't sin. Understand the amazing experience of being forgiven in all that it is, not what you first thought it to be, and not what you experienced between, your, in, between people in your human relationships, but all that God says it is to him and all that he offers you. When you understand that, you will find it so captivating. You will find it so motivating to say I can do without sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you continually work with us. You are patient and, and even without understanding you well enough, you forgive us and, and yet you have so much more for us today. We thank you for your servant, John. We thank you that he knew your son so intimately where he could trust what you were about in such amazing ways, and he could help us today. Father, I pray for every person in this room that whatever uh, temptation they face today, whatever struggle they walk through, though they, may be, uh, though they may be amazingly difficult, though they may be the most difficult and tempting thing they've ever faced in their life, that this week the concepts behind your forgiveness would absolutely transform our thinking. That your spirit would miraculously move in our hearts and minds to be captivated by your love. To understand that you're our king and you don't just boss us around, but you love us into places that are so incredible. And so when you say to us little children, turn from sin, we would find that strength and that courage to say, that's what I want to do, Father. Help me follow you. Father, I pray you would give each person the glory of your gracious presence this week and victory over sin. In Jesus' name.